Hello, and welcome to The Roundtable, a Next Generation Politics podcast. Next Generation Politics is a cross-partisan nonprofit building a movement of young people committed to building bridges across various divides. I'm Olivia, and this week, Divya, Eliza, Madeline, and I spoke with the stellar Shonda Chapman, director of the Girls Fund Initiative at the Miss Foundation. This is the second episode in our series on national identity, inclusion, and belonging. We talked about how the intersection of racism and sexism cooperate to keep the experiences of girls and women of color silenced and invisibilized, and why they are important to include in public narratives. We talked about ways in which our national identity and the image of who we are as a people is simultaneously expanding and contracting. We talked about the depression to prison pipeline and how what gets characterized as bad is often resistance. And importantly, we talked about what it means to build power within social justice movements. Chandra reminded us that the people closest to problems are closest to solutions and that our vulnerabilities can be our strengths. Thank you for joining us. Hi everyone, my name is Divya Ganesan. I'm a high school senior from the Bay Area, California and co-founder of Real Talk with Eliza Goler. Um, I'm really passionate about creating space for productive dialogue and I'm excited to be here today. Hi, my name is Eliza Goler and like Divya, I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area and co-founded Real Talk. Uh, I'm really interested in criminal justice reform and I'm excited to be here today. Hi, my name is Madeline Mays. I am a high school sophomore from Brooklyn, New York, and I'm extremely passionate about developing a sense of community amongst females and amongst Gen Z, regardless of where they fall on the political spectrum. Hi, I am Olivia Becker, and I am a senior from New York City. In addition to being a podcaster, I am also the National Director of Outreach and Engagement for NGP and a lead civic fellow for our civic forums in New York City. And I'm really passionate about, you know, the nuances surrounding criminal justice reform, as well as creating space for productive cross-partisan dialogue. And really excited to have you on today. Hi, Shonda Chapman. I am the director of the Girls of Color Initiative at the Miss Foundation for Women. High school was a very, very, very long time ago for me, uh, but I am really thrilled to be here. And I am especially excited to speak with youth who are doing such engaging work. I can't remember myself being nearly um, as ready for a podcast or, you know, anything like that. So I'm thrilled. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I mean, we're so happy to have you on. I think wanted to start with a more robust introduction of you. You know, how has your lived experience brought you into the line of work that you are currently in? And maybe if you wanted to elaborate on some of um, your role within the Miss Foundation. Certainly. Well, this is a really, it's an interesting question. I feel like I'd never answer it the same anytime. My path was a very, very, very windy one. Um, but I, I definitely know that my, my biography, all of my sort of past experiences do inform what I do now. But uh, a little bit about, I guess, the identities that I walk around with, I think, to begin is something that I like to talk about, because certainly our positionality matters. I'm someone who identifies as a Black woman, an African-American woman. I am someone who is a parent. I parent two children ages three and nine, or maybe they parent me, I cannot tell just yet. Um, <laughs> I identify as a queer woman. I identify as a fat woman. So I'm someone who is from a working class Southern family background. 
So uh, those are some of the experiences that I walk around with. Um, in addition to someone who, uh, who is a survivor of sexual violence, I'm a survivor of the juvenile justice system. And in a sort of a, in a long way, those things really did sort of land me at what I'm doing. I, uh, at the Ms. Foundation, I work on building out a fund um, uh, that will support the organizing and the leadership of girls of color in the U.S. Um, girls of color who are often um, situated at uh, the intersection of sort of most multiple systems of oppression, uh, many of whom who have had similar experiences as me. So uh, it's really wonderful to to, to know that some of the things that I went through as a youth aren't in vain. Uh, I have a background in research and policy um, and also a, a background in doing some, some movement work, some advocacy and some activism. Um, I was the director of the Beyond the Bars Fellowship at Columbia for a very long time. And I also uh, did some work with an organization called Black Women's Blueprint that works to end gender-based violence um, against Black women and girls. And so in a, <laughs> like, Though after, you know, I, I was doing those, that, those sort of strands of work for a very long time um, and kind of built a reputation um, based on some of that work, which ultimately sort of landed me where I'm at now at the Ms. Foundation, um, doing work to, to support girls. But uh, more than supporting girls, one of the things that we work on doing is actually building and shifting power. Well, I personally, one, I really appreciate how you started off with talking about the different parts of your identity that frames your experience. I know something that both of us think about a lot as we try to engage with diverse perspectives is like, how do we bring to the table our own identities and use mm -hmm. that to frame our perspectives and how do we use that to understand others? And so hearing that off the bat really helps me, I think, get a bit understanding of where you're coming from. Um, oh, thank you for and, that. It's difficult. It's it's one of those things difficult. where I... I used to I, I used to say that I was in the closet. Like I would, I had all these personal experiences that um, I struggled with for a long time, and um, I I would I'd really hide because I thought that if people knew that I was a survivor of violence, that they would treat me differently. If they knew that I was a kid who grew up, you know, through in the justice system, like you know, who actually went to juvenile detention, that they would think of me differently. Um, or that they wouldn't see me as competent or they wouldn't trust me. And so I really, for a very long time, hid those experiences, but I found myself often at tables, at decision-making tables, um, you know, around research, around policy. And I felt like I was uniquely suited to be co contributing to discussions around these things, um, but I was quiet. And I and it, I also, you know, I believe that I'm the beneficiary of a lot of investment. People believed in me. like that that's how I got here. Like people were able to see me beyond whatever my story was, beyond whatever sort of case file was on their desk. And I felt like I had a responsibility to everyone who invested in me, also to like any of the youth that grew up and sort of struggle with things to be visible about some of those challenges I deal with, um, especially around the fact that, um, you know, people closest to problems are also closest to solutions. And, you know, not viewing uh, ourselves as, uh, uh, or not viewing those experiences as a weakness, but as a strength. Well, that was almost kind of an answer to the question I was about to ask, which is what gives you the courage to be so vulnerable? And have you ever received pushback for sharing your identities in the way that you do? 
interestingly, I don't think I received sort of uh, direct pushback per se, um, but I have been in spaces where um, I, I felt like sometimes we do, we, there's, a, there's a balance between sort of being tokenized um, and um, I feel like what can happen is that people sort of fetishize or exoticize a certain experience. And so they want to hear just that. And I don't think that they always want to hear some of the complexities of those experiences. I don't think that people always want to hear the ways that they may be sort of perpetuating a certain phenomena. And I think that the idea of accountability is, is difficult for folks. So, um, not shame per se, um, but certainly uh, I think that people want to sort of be proximate to an experience that they can benefit from. And when you start to push back, you know, sort of on all the sort of structural things that affect um, uh, sort of the desire even to, to, to want to have your voice in the room, I think that it can make people uncomfortable. As kind of a segue into the work that you've been doing, I'm curious if you can explain a little bit uh, why girls and specifically why girls of color um, in the criminal justice system, why that's a really important demographic to be focusing on and what the challenges are um, that girls are facing. Okay, uh, that's also a really, uh, it's a difficult question, um, not because I don't know the answer, but that, you know, every time I have to think about it, um, it just makes my heart hurt a little bit. Um, so there are a number of reasons why girls are girls of color specifically are disproportionately impacted by the justice system. Um, things like uh, the fact that they're sort of situated at many systems of oppression. Um, you think about uh, racism and structural violence. You think about um, gender-based violence. Um, girls of color are sort of disproportionately more likely to be living in homes that are struggling economically. And all of these factors sort of combine to sort of put them at the edge. There was a study recently um, called the adultification of black girls. You might've heard of it. I think Georgetown Center on Poverty, Georgetown Law Center on Poverty and Inequality did that study that found that girls of color from the ages of five or so were more likely to be viewed um, with suspicion. They were more likely to be seen as adult, um, more likely to be seen as responsible. And so those are some of the ways that sort of from a very early age, girls of color become more vulnerable. And so they are sort of intersecting with uh, you know, the systems of punishment at school, um, in their homes, uh, girls of color are often experiencing family violence. Um, there are a lot of negative messages just, you know, just out in society that like don't support them. Um, there are other studies that I've seen recently that find that, you know, law enforcement uh, are more likely to sort of treat them with hostility and brutality. Um, and then I think, you know, those are just two layers of identity. When you think about even sort of queer or non-binary sort of youth of color, um, folks are experiencing sort of conflict at home sort of around some of their identities and all those things really do work together um, to land them into the justice system because we don't have um, any other um, uh, like real solutions to be sort of addressing some of the issues that they face. I think that's a really good segue into something I was wondering, um, which is in the past, right, five, 10 years, really, we've seen this heightened awareness about the inequities of the criminal justice system, right, and a bipartisan push for reform that has been successful in a lot of ways and also has fallen short. 
Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of the narratives I've been hearing from the media surrounding this are about men of color mm -hmm. and not about women of color. How do you think that these narratives that have dominated the, the media have helped and hurt the advocacy work that you have been doing in particular? Yeah, so I think that one, it, it, the one thing that ends up being difficult in sort of the, the you know, uh, the sort of m the men versus girls sort of paradigm is that one it invisibilizes the experiences of girls, especially girls of color, um, who end up being one of the fastest growing uh, justice system populations. The other thing is, I feel like what happens is it pits uh, people who are supporting work around girls and people who are supporting work around boys against each other for resources. And I think that we do this sort of hierarchy, you know, around sort of who is worse off. That's not helpful for anybody at all. Um, so those, I would say that is certainly a challenge. Um, I, I can't find any way that it is, it's helped at all. Um, I, don't, I don't think that those narratives are helpful in any form. Um, but they certainly complicate uh, getting support for boys or girls um, there. But, you know, sexism, racism, sexism, and sort of the, the, the intersection of racism and sexism certainly work together to make sure that the experiences of girls are unseen. And what happens is for girls, um, especially girls of color, anytime you speak up for yourselves, you usually regard it as hostile. And so the people that were doing a lot of the advocacy that sort of made the work that's happening around girls right now, initially got a lot of pushback um, for even saying, hey, you know, what about the girls? You know, and even in my work, one of the things that happens often is that you explain, I'm working on this initiative uh, for girls. I'm working on this initiative for girls of color. The first question almost always is what about boys? are we still serious? You know, we'll be in a room um, and we're talking about boys and you don't hear the question, well, what about the girls? Like that doesn't come up. So usually when I get the, what about boys question, it's like, you know, come back to me <laughs> when girls are sort of dominating the space, you know, when um, girls have an equal amount of attention, when their needs are addressed and they're heard, then I'll, I'll answer that question is usually my reply. Yeah, no, I also feel like it's an and, not an or, right? Absolutely. It's not like you, you can help one or the other. It's like, how can we collectively be lifting everyone? Yeah, and that binary doesn't actually serve anybody, you know, because many of the, the youth that we hope to serve um, don't identify as girl or boy, right? And so um, that narrative, it, you know, that sort of you know, exclusionary narrative has consequences for both, especially when you think about um, trans and non-binary youth of color who, um, you know, are again disproportionately more likely to find themselves impacted by the justice system, disproportionately more likely to be victims of violence. Um, it doesn't help anybody at all. Yeah, I completely agree. And that has me wondering a little bit about our national identity and how that has developed um, throughout um, recent times, I, I guess. Um, I think that America is viewed as, um, is viewed differently than it actually is. Mm -hmm. And I think that the perspective when you think of America is always about who's in power, who has the most mm -hmm. power. Which, seems to be white straight men, which obviously we aren't all. We don't mm -hmm. always fit that mold. Mm -hmm. So I guess my question for you is, do you think that um, the identity of our society or how our society is viewed 
is it becoming more inclusive and is it starting to open up to other minorities and other, or not even minorities because females aren't necessarily the minorities, but becoming more inclusive. So do you think that that image of America or that image of our society is developing or do you think that it's still taking a while to get to somewhere it needs to go? Uh, that's a really interesting question. I wish that when I was your age, I was thinking about questions like that. <laughs> I think many of us, we'd be a lot further along in the answer to this if, you know, if more youth had the the sort of um, the exposure to some of these concepts. So it's interesting. I feel like we are expanding and contracting all at once. Um, when I have conversation with uh, youth, you know, especially like millennials, um, it's interesting how they're not married to such concepts as um, gender, as sexuality. I think there's absolutely an opening up that's happening that um, young people are leading, you know, and oftentimes even I get sort of checked around binary thinking a lot of times by younger people. And they're like, you know, I think that's great, but no, I don't actually have to be one thing or the other thing. So I definitely see this like tremendous sort of expansion um, around uh, the idea of inclusivity. But there are other places where I see a contraction. Um, I, it's interesting. You know, when I thought about racial progress, I didn't ever think that I'd see what's happening right now. Um, I think that uh, sort of the current administration really did give people the, the, the green light to be their worst selves in, a, in ways that are completely unexpected to me. Um, I, it's, I've experienced racism my entire life. I grew up in the South, in Texas, as a matter of fact, um, well acquainted with racism. Um, but the thing that's different now is that there's like permission to sort of be it in the open where I felt like it was not, it, it was passe in a certain way to be openly racist, um, to be openly sexist. Um, and I, I'm surprised, I'm, I'm surprised and I'm frightened by it a little bit, but my hope is that sort of, it's that last sort of dying breath um, and that, you know, really what we're doing is sort of creating space for young people to lead us sort of around the world that we actually want to live in. In your eyes, what are the distinct problems girls of color face as opposed to like all women of color as a whole? Hmm. Well, I definitely think that there's, there's a there's a thing that sort of starts in youth and sort of uh, metastasizes in a certain way, you know, sort of over the life course. And as you get older, I think that those things sort of uh, are exacerbated. But the major thing I think is that that girls of color don't get to control all of their their environment. They're not necessarily responsible um, for family conflict. They're not responsible, um, you know, for the economic situations of their parents. Um, but again, they end up in the world sort of, you know, expected to, to, to perform as if they sort of had an equal sort of opportunity as everybody else. So for me, I think um, sort of my desire is to, to empower girls early. I also think that, you know, sort of some of the, the sort of negative thinking, some of the um, internalization of uh, stereotypes, a lot of that happens to me for me as 
as young people. And so if we can sort of, you know, be able to sort of get under and support them early. I hope that, you know, what we do is sort of um, help to support more empowered, you know, people who grow who who grow up and sort of end up as adults without some of the same issues that we have to face. I'm curious as an extension of of that question and the idea that girls and children in general are in circumstances that they don't control that can really affect their behavior. You know, girls who are involved in criminal behavior, I, mm-hmm. it's due it's due to circumstances that are far beyond their control. And so I'm curious to hear from you what type of care and support uh, you've been able to provide girls through your work or hope that girls can be provided through the work that you're doing um, to to guide and support them. Yeah, Um, I think first I'll tell you a little bit about sort of, you know, my own background and sort of, you know, what things were like for me. Sort of as a youth, um, I remember going from a like A student, and then having an experience like, uh, you know, having an experience of violence um, that impacted me, impacted my mom, um, that really tore our family apart, you know, in many ways and sort of, um, you know, that experience was, it, it kind of like, it sent a shockwave like through our whole life, right? And it wasn't until I was adult that I understood, you know, the concept of a sexual abuse to prison pipeline. And so, you know, how that one experience can make you depressed, can make you sad, um, could impact your family, that impact on your family then, you know, having the sort of cascading experiences of making you more vulnerable because of poverty. Um, yeah, that was a really hard time in my life. And because of the stigma sort of attached to one being a survivor of, of sexual violence. And I think that, you know, we have a language for it that we didn't have sort of back when I was young. It was just something that was dirty. You didn't talk about it at all. And, and the hope was that if you didn't talk about it, that it would just go away. Um, for many of the youth that I've been in contact with, it's similar, right? After you, um, you know, sort of, you know, feel relationship with them, you hear about the fact that they've had those experiences and often they're still having them in many ways. And uh, we don't have an answer for it, right? Because there's like not a great solution for many youth, what happens is they get removed from their home and they go into the foster care system, which then sort of, you know, it it completely devastates their lives. It doesn't help them at all. Um, Or, you know, for others, it's like punishment. Like for me, I got um, some time in juvenile detention, didn't help me. Um, What it did was sort of solidify my identity as someone who was troubled, um, as someone who uh, was a bad girl per se. And so for me, what I did was really live into that experience. So I would say, you know, the really sad part is that uh, a lot of girls' behavior that gets categorized as criminal, for me, is often resistance. You know, they're often, they're often uh, resisting, uh, you know, uh, sort of unfair treatment in their schools. They're re- resisting, um, uh, you know, violence in communities. They're sort of resisting uh, sort of family lives that don't Uh, understand their identities and really give them a hard time. So what I wished I had in that particular moment was someone who would just listen to me and, 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 and ask me what I needed, right? Because I think that it's an individual thing, but often what 
girls that get pushed into the justice system don't get is someone to see them, someone to believe in them, someone to ask them what they need and to support them. And so, you know, part of what I do is uh, I support organizations at this point who do that work around supporting girls, around creating safe spaces for them, around uh, places that they can just be and they can be them whole, their, their whole selves and they can be their fullest selves. Um, and where they don't have to, uh, they don't have to be unsafe. Yeah, I think that's really important. And in addition to that, right, the fact that you support multiple different organizations because the experience of girls in color in one community is probably slightly different than those in another community. Absolutely. To address those different lived experiences. Mm -hmm. um, I would say my question is kind of a more macro point to the work you're doing. So I think the Miss Foundation has a really unique mission statement, right? In that you're building the power of women in social justice fields. That's right. Um, could you elaborate on that notion of building power, right? What does it mean to build power and what does it look like in practice? And then also for our listeners that are interested, how can they be involved in building this kind of power? Yeah, I think the separation that uh, that we're trying to create around sort of the idea of building power um, is that I'll, let me see if I can explain it simply. I was having a conversation with uh, an uh, activist that I know, Danielle Sered, and she made the point that the opposite of uh, helplessness is not help. And it was kind of blew my mind um, for just a moment because the uh, what happens I think with when people uh, are, are in certain situations, they feel helpless. Like you feel a certain helplessness around uh, sexism. You feel a certain helplessness around racism. And her thought or her thinking around that was that the opposite of helplessness isn't help, right? And so a lot of times what we try to do to remedy the situation of helplessness is provide help, provide direct service. But in fact, the answer is power right and the the power to determine your own life the power to um determine your own destiny and so that's actually what we want uh for uh, women and girls is for them to be able to determine their own destinies whatever they decide that should be um not give them what they need in a very paternalistic way um to to decide for them we we want everyone to be able to live into their fullest potential and to decide for themselves and so that's what we aim to help them do That's all for today, friends. I'm editor Sarita Adabala signing off for all of us at Next Generation Politics. Please check out our website at www.nextgenpolitics.org to find out more about our work. And please recommend us to your civic-minded friends or to your friends you'd like to become more civic-minded. Thanks for listening.